You know, we are in a uh, series called Faith Walk. Faith Walk. It's stepping out on an adventure, following hard after him. What does God have in store? How can I partner with him? Faith Walk. That's what we're learning as we look at Abram, who will soon be called Abraham. And we're learning what he learns. We're going to steal some principles away from his life. What did he learn as he worked through things, and may we apply them to our life? That's where we're at. Today, we're actually looking at a piece that's going to talk about an unsteadied world. Things going on around us that aren't that stable, and things that are actually drawing and sucking us in, and what should our response be? Let's just start this way. The Great Wall of China. The Great Wall of China. It took... Several hundred years to actually build this. Several different dynasties, okay, that came together. And they were actually separated by a large period of time as well. But by the time it got done, almost 4,000 miles of wall that was put up for protection to make sure that those guys don't get over here. You know what I'm saying? Like That's what the whole point of the wall was. They set this thing up, and then they defended that wall, and they made sure that nobody got through. Well, guess what? In the end, the wall was penetrated. It was breached. How did they breach the wall? Did they destroy it? Did, did they climb over it and they just, it didn't really hold them? No, you know what they did? They bribed a guard. And the gate was open and they were let through. In the end, 4,000 miles of preparation, but character is what became the downfall. What we have to be careful of is, Lord, what should our character be like in the midst of this imbalanced world this world that's drawing on us and hitting us how can i make sure that my character doesn't fall and that your name is defended with all i've got that's what we're looking at today okay so turn with me to genesis chapter 14 verses 1 through 16 genesis 14 and uh, the ushers are coming forward we got bibles in their hands and if you need a bible just raise your hand we'll get one to you okay we're going to walk verse by verse through this so just raise your hand they'll get one to you First step in making sure we properly defend is we must be in the world, but not of the world. We must be in the world, but not of the world. We've heard this phrase a lot, right? Uh, We must be in, but not of. Okay, well, what's that mean? What does that look like? How are we pulling that out of this passage? I'm just going to start by saying this. This is one of those passages that when you're preaching expositorily and you're just walking through a book or a portion of a book, you will stop and you will go through this passage because it's the next one in line. This is also one of those passages where if you're just randomly selecting one for the day, uh, it, it might not be this one. Let's see why. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Eleazar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with... <coughs> Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. Uh, let's all close our Bibles and now we'll just pray. Right? <laughs> all right. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. Why in the world would God put these names in here? Well, I think part of it was to give you suggestions on names for your children. Chedorlaomer. I mean, it just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Right? No. 
history can actually tie in a little bit of what is going on. How real is this? What's taking place? There are some points that are being made. And if you notice, that was five kings that were just listed. Keep that in mind. Five kings. How many kings was that? Five kings. Okay, just keep that in mind. All right. So we, as we keep going on here, it says 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer. This is why. Why is there a battle? Okay. 12 years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in, okay, here we go. Ready? In Ashtaroth Canarium and the Zuzum in Ham, the Emim, I would love to be a part of that nation, the Emim in Shava Cariathium, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as Elparam and the border of on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazan Tamar. Okay, what's the point? Here's the point. International war. Say that with me. International war. That's the point, okay? What we have is some kings who are coming to reign and bring some trouble. Why? Because we have rebellion. That's what's going on. And as they're coming in, they're basically, anybody they're coming across, they're saying, and we're done with you, okay? You are now prisoner or you are destroyed. That's what's happening. We have not just some little skirmish or not just some little disagreement between so-and-so and so-and-so. This is, they were under the authority of, and they chose after 12 years to say, no thank you in the 13th year. And in the 14th year, it took a year, Cheddar Leomar said, that's enough of that. And he put together... A serious, powerful, battling group of men. And they came forward. Four of those kings came forward and they were saying, we will do battle with you. You will get in line. We have international war taking place and every nation who was touched along the way said, get in line or else. Okay? That's what's going on. So if we grasp big problem, lots of unrest... Four kings were going hard after it, and you better get in line or else we're getting the picture. Okay? Verse 8. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Sidiim with Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariak, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Thank you for the summary. Right? At the end of verse 9, that's your summary. This is really what's going on. Four kings coming into battle, five kings. Four kings against five. Maybe just say that with me. Four kings against five. And now you know verses 1 through 11. Okay? That's what's going on. Some intense battling of names that, quite frankly, aren't the biggest in history, but they're, they made the big time. They made scripture. Right? And God's making a point. International war was taking place as the four kings from the east come to battle the five kings that live right around Abram in the Jordan Valley and saying, get in line or else. The world is an unrest. There's a lot going on. And it'd be easy to get drawn in. Four kings against five. That's verse 9. Verse 10, now the valley of Sidiim was full of tar pits. 
or bitumen pits. Those big, nasty, sticky, you fall in them, you ain't coming out of them pits of tar and gunk and whatever that would suck you under. They were full of those. And as the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them and the rest fled into the hill country. Okay, we're not exactly sure how they fell into them, but it would probably be a couple of these following scenarios. As you're running and somebody's chasing you, you look ahead and you pick where you're running and you run a little bit, right? And then you're wondering, how close are they? And so you turn around and you're running and you fall into a tar pit, okay? So some of it is they're looking back and they are scared to death and they're falling in exactly the spot they shouldn't be. Some of it, quite frankly, is don't you know your own backyard? Like you're fighting in your own country. How could you not know? Uh Uh-oh, don't go up that rock cliff. Right around the corner is the tar pit up there. Like they should have known their stuff. Probably a bit ill-prepared, quite frankly. They should have known their thing. It should have become their benefit, not their harm. They should have been able to lead the other guys into the tar pits. But they led themselves there. A bit of a problem. These guys weren't necessarily ready for battle. And as they were running, they weren't necessarily battling well. And they're ending up dying along the way. Some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. Verse 11. So the enemy, the four kings, took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They took provisions and possessions and people. Why in the world tell us this? Why is this important? We were in the middle of this story about Abram and his walk and his his adjustments in life and and Lot and uh, some of the bad decisions and how can you learn about a faith walk and and all of a sudden a litany of names and, and, and why tell us this? Verse 12. They also took Lot. Oh, I see. It's affecting the two guys we're looking at. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. These guys were on the take, and they took from everybody, including Lot. Lot was hanging out with the wrong crew. Lot was hanging out with a group of men who decided... Uh, We're going to rebel against those in authority over us. We're going to rebel in such a way that it's going to bring heat upon us. They're going to come and battle. And I'm hanging out in your town, so now I am too going down with you. That was Lot's issue. He was in the world, but quite frankly, he was also of the world. If you watch in chapter 13, he chose that which looked most like Egypt, the property. But then it said, and then he moved towards Sodom. Well, now we find out he's living in Sodom. He's being drawn towards that which is of the world, that which is attractive to the eye. It looks good. It feels good. It shows me off. And so I'm going for it. Lot is kind of hung up in the midst of the world, and he's paying the price. He's now caught. He's captive. He's a possession of these four kings as a prisoner. You know, we need to make sure that we stay in the world, but not of the world. We could look at this story and we could say, oh, our message needs to be, uh, don't go anywhere near the world. Don't do anything with them or about them or around them. Be nowhere near anyone 
unless they proclaim Jesus Christ as their king, and then you only hang with them. We'll call it the holy huddles of the universe, and we're going to have these holy huddles, and that's all we should do is just hang out with believers. And Well, the problem is we're going to see Abram doesn't do that in just a little bit. We're going to talk about that in the next couple points. That's not exactly what's being taught here. The principle that's being taught is not don't ever come near the world, not, hey, just like in the 12 and 1300s, go run up on a mountain by yourself as a monk and never, ever come down and try to not be affected by anyone in the world. It's quite the opposite. It's let God so affect you and then so be in the world so that they can see God affecting you, but don't be of the world so that they can see there's a God that's bigger than anything they could have or go after so that they can say, what is it you have? Who is it that you have? That's the call. Lot, he just has what they have. We're called to have way more. A vibrant, dynamic, living relationship with a God who is moving in our lives, who is changing and shaping us, where one day we're up and we're flying high and we can't believe what he's doing. And the next day we're hitting something hard and we're struggling with it and we're praying. We may even be in tears over it and The world is seeing you go through this and you turn and stay with your God and in the midst you're learning and you're growing and there's still a joy and they don't get it. And you get to have a testimony. Being in the world but not of the world. Well, how do I do that? Three ways to ensure that you're in the world but not of the world. Three ways to ensure. Number one, make sure your eyes are focused on what God is doing. Eyes. Make sure your eyes are focused on what God is doing. Not what man is doing or what's available around you. Make sure your eyes are seeing the very handiwork of God. Evidences of God's grace, if you want to say it that way. It's a C.J. Mahaney term. Picked it up a year ago at one of the conferences we were at. We do it every week as a staff. Evidences of God's grace. Where do you see God working? What's he doing? Why is that important? Because all too often we just start to look at what's broken and it drags us down. The more you're in leadership positions and the more you're responsible for things around you, the more you'll tend to see the brokenness of what's around you. You need to be seeing what God's doing too. It's going to keep you on the level. Make sure your eyes are focused on what God is doing. That's the first step. Second, make sure your ears are listening what God is saying. You can hear the scream of the world. Are you hearing the whisper of the Holy Spirit? Make sure your ears are hearing what God is saying. Well, how do I know what he's saying? Well, this is a good place to start. The word of God. Make sure your ears are hearing what he has to say. How do I know? If you have a Bible, lift it up. Go ahead and lift it up right now. If you have a Bible, This is how you know. We hear. Use the word of God to be more. Use the word of God to be more than just something that sits on the corner of a desk and looks pretty and that comes to church once a week. Something that you read through and that you listen to God through and you hear him speak. May your eyes be open to what he's doing. May your ears be open to what he's saying. And last, may your heart be longing for what he wants. May your heart be longing for what he wants. Your passions. If you're in the world and you're set to say, Lord, I want to see what you're doing. I want to hear what you're saying. 
I, I want to love what you love and hate what you hate. I want to be about what you're going to be about. Your eyes, your ears, and your heart beating for him, listening for him, looking for him. That's where you're in the world, but not of the world, okay? You're like, well, that's metaphorical. How do I know what to do with that? You really have to figure it out in each of your lives. What is God calling you to see? Where is his hand moving? Really think about it right now. Where is his hand moving in your world, in your workplace? Or, or maybe it's in your home or in your school. But where is God working and what is he doing? What's he saying to you through scripture as you read and as you come on Sundays and you're hearing challenges? What, what's the challenge to you? Really think about it. What is that challenge to you? What are the passions you need to embrace of his so that you look like him, not like the world? That's our challenge. Lot, he learned all too well what it was to hang out in Sodom and look like one who was from Sodom. And he was taken prisoner being in Sodom. Our challenge is to make sure our eyes and our ears and our heart are in alignment with him. Be in the world, but not of the world. That's the first point. Second, we must prepare for battle. We must prepare for battle, but engage only when necessary. We must prepare for battle, but engage only when necessary. Check verse 13. He says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol, and of Aner. There was somebody who was taken prisoner, and he escaped. This guy came running. Where did he go running to? He went running to Abram. Why? It doesn't say. We can only assume he's fully aware that somehow Abram and Lot are hooked together, that they're kinsmen. We can only assume that somehow he knew that Abram had a sense of responsibility for Lot. He was going to respond to this thing. We can also only assume that he somehow looked at Abram and saw either blessing or, or authority and power or a lot of possession, a lot of skill, something where he went, you can help this problem, right? He showed up there and he told Abram about what was going on. Just a couple of names to note there. Notice the words Mamre, Eschol, and Aner. It says right after it, these were allies of Abram. That's a big deal in this passage. Remember I said, we have to be careful. The principle is not just avoid the world. What's Abram doing? He's made allies with those right around him. But it says he just lived by them. It doesn't say he lived among them. It doesn't say he became them. It says he has an ally with them. There is some level of interaction and trust. There is some working together. But he is also saying, I serve my God and what my God says goes. And I will not break on that. But... In the midst of doing that, you and I, if we can agree to work together, great. Then let's head that direction. Allies. Not friendship, right? Friendship with the world is enmity with God, we're told. Well, what does that mean? It means you're adopting their ways of thinking, their ways of doing and being. You don't look different then. That's friendship with the world. Allies. Oh, you look different, but you're still interacting with. There's still an interdependence at times. It's okay to borrow your neighbor's lawnmower if yours breaks down. It's okay to lend your lawnmower to them. 
right? It's great. Let's interact with each other. Let's work with each other. And let's still serve a God who is so big and so awesome and so life-changing that we will run hard after him. It's, Lord, help me to look different than the world because I'm looking like you. Help me to just look and see and respond and be just like you. But be available to reach out to those around in the world as they have struggles. Be an ally. Not a friend, but an ally. We have to be careful because that word friend has so many meanings. But the meaning, very biblical meaning is, I'm adjusting me to look like them. That's what we don't want to be doing. Okay? He says that he's got allies in them. And then it says in verse 14, When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, this is when he led forth his trained men. Notice what it doesn't say. When he heard about a war going on, he said, cool, I'm in. Hey, if there's battles, I'll jump on battles. Let's do that. That's not what he said. Or, hey, I hear there's some needs and some hurts, and so I'm just on it. I don't care who's being... No, it was when it's affecting lot that he jumped in he's definitely waging and and balancing lord when do you want me involved and when don't you and at the moment you have a group of men who are being disobedient to their authorities and there's issues going on and in the midst of that war going on it's not just i live closer to these guys i'll go to battle with them i live further from you i'll go to battle against it's not that it's let's make sure this all goes according to god's plan God, what do you want accomplished? And at the moment that Lot's taken prisoner, now he needs to wade in. You see it? It's a big difference. It's not just go running in and find a battle and go get in it. It's, Lord, what would you have me be a part of? And where is that thing going on that is against what you'd want accomplished in your scriptures and where you're headed? And that's the things I need to be wading in on. Lord, help me see those. And then the last piece, and this is the key piece for this passage. Who does Abram bring with him? It says that Abram, when he heard about his kinsmen being taken captive, in verse 14, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. His trained men, so he has guys in his organization, if you will, right? Because these aren't through his kids. He doesn't have kids yet. So these are just servants and people around him. These are men who are well-skilled in the art of war. They know how to battle. They know how to chase. They know how to plan and scheme for battle. They know how to take on numbers bigger than themselves. They are well-trained. They weren't just hanging around under the oaks of Mamre watching their sheep graze. They were preparing. They were getting ready for battle. Men who were being built into an army. It's a big deal. Abram knew he was going to be in charge of a nation, and Abram was collecting lots of men and property, and so what did he do? He trained an army. That's what he did. Be prepared for where you're headed. Notice he says after the training, born to his house, not just prepared, loyal. You were born into my household. Why did he only take them? Because you're not just a servant. You're not just somebody I picked up along the way. You're born here. You grew up here. You know everything about us. You can name the names of your loyalty is with us. You're here. He's got trained, loyal, 318 of them. Small numbers. He's really relying on God Almighty in this situation. 
Remember, we have four kings and their nations that are sending out their armies to come to do battle. They are doing complete wasting of anybody anywhere that comes against him. And he's like, give me 318 guys and I'm good. Can you hear it? There's some serious confidence there. It's either in himself and his 318 guys or it's in his God who's going to do the protecting for him. We need to make sure that we train, that we definitely are around and are ourselves loyal and that we recognize that God's in the battle. That's where Abram was at. And we only engage when we feel that it's absolutely God saying, yeah, this is what we need to be wading into. Well, how in the world do I prepare? How do I train? You know, let me just put it this way. Two steps. We'll refer to two sermon series. Grow right. That was the last seven-week series we were just in. If you weren't with us for that, or maybe you missed a few of them, go back. Check it out on the web. We've got all the messages up there. The Grow Right series, it's a powerful statement on, Lord, how do you want me to be changing? How do you want me to be transforming? Or maybe, how do you want me to be training would be another way to say it. Lord, help me to grow to be more like you. You want to be ready for battle? You need to be growing right. You know, let me just give you a quick summary in two words. There's the vertical and there's the horizontal. And in the vertical, we talked about this spiritual breathing, this confessing, breathing out the, Lord, please forgive me for everything I've done wrong. Where am I at with? And be specific. Please forgive me for the attitude, for the action of, for the, you're just getting your will in alignment with him. And then the inhaling, Lord, please, I just want to embrace who you are. Your amazingness, your, your awesomeness, your holiness, your otherness, your vastness, your willingness to forgive. That's spiritual breathing. Let me tell you, this last week, I can say I pretty much forgot to breathe for a number of days. And all of a sudden, I started realizing I'm a lot more temperamental than I normally am. What's going on? If you're sitting here going, breathing, that sounds easy. Like, if that's where you are, then let me just challenge you with this. Try it. It's not as easy as you think because you're really wrestling with your own will. As you're saying, Lord, I'm putting me in alignment with you. Go after it regularly, daily, often. I'm telling you, it took me a Saturday morning of a couple hours of just getting some things right with him. And all of a sudden, I'm in a different spot again. I'm in a better place as I respond to people, as I react to situations, as I think about things. You want to be breathing. That's the first part of that vertical in the grow right. And the second part is be still. Remember that just meant drop your arms. That's what it literally means in the Hebrew. It means don't fight or battle. Just be still before the Lord. Breathing and be still. That's the vertical. And then the horizontal, you know, you could say it's uh, this idea of being accountable and, and trying hard, working. Lord, how can I be training with you? What do you want me to be doing to be a part of it? Let's grow right. It's really four steps. Not that big of a deal. There's a sermon series out there on it. Check it out. That's the best way you can be preparing. And then a second step to it is fight right. It's a series we referred to 10 months back. Back in, maybe it's even 12 months back now. Wow. Back in November of last year. Get on that series. It's how do I battle the world, the flesh, and the devil? The world, you need the fence lines. Like, it's okay to be in, but you got to have some protection around certain pieces and not going to go there, fence lines. 
and the devil, as he attacks, you're going to stand firm and you're going to speak the truth against those lies. And in the flesh, you're going to flee or run. But those are opposing. When do I stand and when do I run? So you've got to become pretty skilled at saying, is this an attack from the outside or is this flesh weakness from the inside? And anytime it's hitting weakness of me, I'm gone. Fight right and grow right and your training. That's what it's about. Have you noticed how these sermon series kind of all tie together? Did you notice that? There's a point to that. Did you know that? Like, it really is a big deal to be stacking these together and growing together on them, okay? So grow right and fight right. It leads to a great faith walk as we move towards him. Question. Are you letting God grow you? How are you doing with grow right? How are you doing with the breathing and being still? I got to tell you, most people, when they say, yeah, grow right, I got it. I'm trying really hard. I'm working on this thing. And, and really all they're doing is putting a lot of flesh effort at life and getting frustrated. It's are you letting God unleash his power upon you? Are you going to be transformed by his glory pouring over you? That's fight right and grow right. Are you ready for it? It's time. It's time to be preparing and training. Because there's a lot coming in this world. We need to be ready for it. So first, it's be in the world, but not of the world. Second, we got to prepare for battle, but engage only when necessary. And third, we must allow God to grow our faith as we are called to battle alongside of him. We must allow God to grow our faith as we are called to battle alongside of him. Start at the end of verse 14 there again. Notice it says, 318 of them, they were trained, they were born in his house, they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Okay, that doesn't mean here. We have a guy named Dan right here. It didn't mean go about six steps. What it meant is 140 miles north. That's how far he traveled. When he decided it's time to engage, it was... It's time to travel 140 miles on foot. Here we go. Can you imagine? You get about a half a mile and you're like, how much further, right? Isn't that what every trip is like? You're like 139 and a half miles to go. That's all. Oh my word. Can you imagine walking 140 miles for battle? Probably partially running. That's a big deal. And it was 140 miles just so they could get in contact with them. Verse 15, and he divided his forces against them by night. Notice that? He took the 318 guys and he split them up. And you're going over there and you're going over there and you're going over there. And So now we got what? 90, 100 guys together at a different spots? In the middle of the darkness, being his ally, using some wisdom. And it says, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them to Hobah. Okay. Hobah, that's another 100 miles north. So now they're 240 miles north, northwest of their home, and they are exhausted, and they are chasing. That's where we're at. Notice the thoroughness of what he's doing. As we look at this, he's actually being decisive as he's running forward. He's being dedicated as he goes 140 miles to Dan. He's being very wise as he separates his guys and uses the night. Right? And he does the battling. 
So he's got this dedication, he's got this wisdom, and then the third, third piece is he's got the thoroughness. He's following all the way to Hobah, 100 miles. I mean, wouldn't you think you get like four or five miles downstream, you're running with them, and they're, they're still running ahead of you, and you're like, good enough, right? Like we got, we scared the snot out of them. We've totally routed them. Like why not? Well, take a look what happens at Hobah. It was north of Damascus, verse, verse 16. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions. Oh, that's right. He was going for Lot. He wasn't going for a route. He was going to get back his kinsmen and all of his stuff. That's what was going on. He had purpose in this adventure and he was thorough to the end. It says that he also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. He basically recovered everything. And there will be a little bit that we'll talk about um, coming up here in two weeks, but uh, you're going to realize that this possessions and all these things that he took, he had some help in it. He had some help from those allies. Take a look at the end of chapter 14 real quick. Just look at that one verse. This is Abram talking, and he says, Let Aner, Eshkol, and Memory take their share. They were a part of this battle, these Amorites. They were a part of what was going on. Well, look in the middle of chapter 14 at verse 7. Why would they care to be a part of it with Abram? Look at, chap- look at verse 7 of chapter 14. It says, Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites. That's who these guys were, right? Their kinsmen had been taken captive and hurt and injured. So they joined forces with Abram and went after it. And Abram, very successfully following after what God's directing, ends up getting Lot and bringing him back home. We have Abram being dedicated, being wise, being thorough. He was remaining under. Here's the question. What is it that's going on in your world where you need to take some of these principles and go after it? If you notice, one of the things we're doing with Scripture is first we make some observations, right? After we make the observations, the next thing we do is we start figuring out what did it mean to them, and we build up some principles. So, like, what's true about God because of that that we can count on today? So... What do we do with it in our lives? That's a four-step process to applying Scripture. So what are you going to do with it? What is it that you're in a war with? What is it that God's calling you to battle with? Or maybe another way we should look at it is we've got Abram and Lot locking arms together. Take a look left and look right. Look around you. Really do it. Look left and look right. You've got people around you. Maybe they're in need. Maybe they need somebody to come after them and help them. Are you ready? Are you prepared? For this body to put arm in arm together, for us to lock together and say, nobody is going to be hurt in here. We are going to be there for one another. We are going to lift up our holy, almighty God who is there for us in every battle and struggle. He is our ultimate provider and protector. And may we be used to work with him as we come alongside one another 
May this body light up, not as a giant group of individuals who happen to come together on Sundays and maybe during a small group time, and a, but may it be way more than that. May we see that we together are one corporate body serving one amazing God. And we need to rally to each other's side for his glory. That's our call, to defend to defend our almighty God and his glory, to defend, to defend this body and protect one another and care for one another. Some of you are like, I've been coming here for three weeks. Welcome. We need to be constantly open-armed and caring for and reaching out to those who are coming in. It is time for us to say, we will defend his glory and we will defend one another. We've got to be there for each other. That's what this is all about. We need to be willing to say, I'm going to run 240 miles for you. That's a lot of running. That's a lot of caring. Lord, how can we reach out to those around us? How can we make sure that this body reflects who you are so that the world looks in and says, I've never seen anything like that in my life. That's what we need to do for each other. God be the glory. We serve an amazing, holy, righteous God. There is none like him. None. And he is reaching down into your life personally and into my life personally. And he is allowing us to experience the richness and the joy of knowing him. Do you have that joy? Are you experiencing the depth of God transforming you? I'm telling you it comes with one simple move the breathing piece. It's time to just get your life in a line with him. And, and then from there, it's the stepping out. Lord, where do you have me to go with you? Get in line with him. Watch him move in your life. May his glory be pouring over you so that you can be transformed. There is no other way but abiding in him, John 15, than to have that joy. That's the way we get it. My prayer for you is that joy. My prayer for you is that dedication, that wisdom, that thoroughness as we go hard after supporting one another and loving him. That is what it looks like from Genesis 14 to say, God, this world is a mess. What would you have us to do? Defend. Defend his honor. Defend our health for each other so we can lift him up. Let's pray.